Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy. As I look back and have a listen to some of the highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, Paul Lyons, Teresa Talbot, Chris McDonald, Hannah Lafferty, Graham Hunter and Jan Patience all talk about their favourite teenage formative years read. Voltaire's Candide, you know, um, I actually brought it with me today. I bought this when I was 14 and uh, I kept this copy um, for all the different places I've been in my life and different houses I've lived in and events I've had and uh, there it is, the tattered. I like the fact that, you, you know, that I think all of us have, it may just be a handful of books, it may just be one book that, mm. not, it's not just the book and the story that takes you back but actually as a physical product. You just want to keep it because holding that book will take you back to maybe just from when you were 14 and when you bought this book. I love books. Um, I've got a great collection of books now. I've got a great library in the house. I've bought a huge amount of books over the past couple of years. You're right, it's a physical thing, Paul. You know, it's looking back to, as a comparison with uh, music, I loved albums. You know, I loved the gatefold sleeves with the big pictures on the front yeah. and you could take them out and you could read the Because there, there's the a Renaissance and vinyl records now. Aye, 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 my daughter's got vinyl and I love that and it's lost now but you're right, it's a physical thing about books. Books are lovely things to have, you know. It's it's one of my great obsessions is books and it, I'm so glad that I kept that. You know, it, it'd been with me, as I say, through many different things, different houses I lived in through the, the past 30 odd, near 40 years. It's it sounds like an unusual choice, but somebody who's not read it, what's, it what it's still it's well it's still the funniest book I've ever read in my life. Right. You know, for a book that was written, I think it was in the seventeen eighties, that it's still laugh out loud material. It's fundamentally a story about a man that will never lose the will to keep going. You know, and it's written in such a a beautiful way. Voltaire was a fascinating man. He was a great wit of his time. He was persecuted through history, but uh, still seen as one of the great writers of all time. And the, the story is simply that this man in the book suffers so many different trials and tribulations, but he still will always look to the positive side of things. And I think that's a great philosophy to have in life, and I still have this to this day. It's, I've said this again on the podcast before, that what, one of the, the things I really love about it is the fact that Effectively, I'm getting book recommendations. Mm-hmm. So when I spoke to Chris Dole and Don Quixote, I hadn't mm-hmm. read that, so I've, mm-hmm. I've read that. Read Far From the Madding Crowd in the back of someone mm-hmm. else. And then right away I'm thinking, well, I'm going to have to read this because I haven't read, mm-hmm. I haven't read this either. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a never-ending... You know, there's so many books in the world that you've never read, but it's, it's great when somebody almost gives you another treasure. I, I think it's, it's astounding, you're right. It opens another avenue when somebody says to you, you know, read this and uh, you immerse yourself in a book that book for me was absolutely incredible and still is to this day and I'll be leaving that with you it's so you can read it it's still, it's still pretty good now it's no bad I don't know, it's like it's leaving, no it's like yes. leaving a fa- family no, no, that's no, a lot no, of pressure no. no, you can have it Paul, you can have it I tell you one thing, when, when you were saying there about you know, you've got a lot of books and, mm-hmm. and it's one thing I've got It's, I mean, I just love I'm not sure sometimes if I love buying books as much as I love reading them and at one point and my wife used to smoke, thankfully she, she gave up cigarettes a long time ago, but every now and again I'd come in with books, or books that would arrive, and she'd go, oh, not more books. And I used to always say, look, no one's ever died of passive reading. <laughs> I, I'm going to use that, because <laughs> I've got the exact same circumstances, Paul, that um, 
Amazon deliveries come on a regular <laughs> basis, and uh, I spent an absolute fortune on them. And I was I'm absolutely obsessed with this library I've got right now, you know. But the thing is, you've always got them, you know, and you can pass them on as as time goes on. I think if you have a good balanced library as well, and I like to think I've got one like that. Now, Candid, Candid, is, it's set in its time, set in the 1700s. And, but as I say, that if you cut straight to the chase, it's a man who's faced terrible adversity. And some of it is absolutely ludicrously funny, you know, which is, it's as if the book was written yesterday, um, but well worth a read. Gone from Anderson's fairy tales to something sort of not quite a fairy tale, but still a well, George Orwell's Animal Farm, just, yeah. because I wasn't allowed to save Julie Cooper books because I used to work <laughs> in a library and I found um, I discovered Julie Cooper and I was reading them and they were all kind of romps and they were quite naughty and quite risque. And I was like, Yes, this is good, I can read these, and it looks as though I'm not being a bit kind of uh, you know, that I'm actually reading something fairly. I, I thought it was kind of highbrow to, you know, put it in. I, w- I would sort of stick it in the middle of a magazine or something, but at least I was reading. But the, the book that really had an effect on me was George Orwell's Animal Farm. And I remember weeping and thinking, oh, my goodness, this is this is terrible. And then I read 1984, and, and I just think everyone should read George Orwell. And I've met people today, 25 to 35-year-olds, now very, very bright people who've been through our education system, people with degrees, people who run their own businesses, who've never heard of George Orwell. And I can't believe that. And I put it on Twitter and oh, it's like, oh, I mean, Twitter's either the really good neighbourhood or it's your yeah. Sunday morning yeah. at you know, two in the morning when everyone's pissed. And the amount of things I get back to, oh, my daughter's a doctor and she's never heard of George Orwell. So, and she's bright. He's like, no, I'm not saying that they're not bright. What I'm saying is there's something wrong with our system, our education system or our, Oh, am I allowed to say culture without? Yeah, our culture. And I mean that with a small C. Our culture. I, I don't. I always think it, it makes you sound as if you're slightly superior. But I think our way of consuming knowledge and acquiring knowledge is completely different from this generation. That it's if it's not a click away, they're not interested. Well, and then it's instantly forgotten. Whereas we. We were given a, a maybe a broader knowledge, but also I think you retained a lot. But more. why were we? Why, why are we not teaching our kids about George Orwell? Why does that seem old fashioned when it's so? Because our popular culture takes so much from George Orwell. Why are our kids not? Of, of course, if you've never read it, there's loads of authors I don't know about. It doesn't make me stupid. Well, I felt, especially see after the Iraq War and the War on Terror, which is just a classic Orwell yeah. phrase. So ever since then, I've been saying to people, you need to read 1984 because it's telling you what's happening now. But that's it's so it's so much part of our culture at the moment. We we take so many so many words like Big Brother, all the you know the double speak, all the, yeah. the things. We take so much from Orwell, and the the point I'm making is it was it, the, the people that I was chatting to that hadn't heard they were very bright people. You know they were degree educated, and I just think what a shame that he's one of our best writers of the 20th century, one of the best British writers, and we're not celebrating him the way. We should be, yeah. and mm. I, I just feel as well. Degree educated it doesn't necessarily mean you're. No, you're, you're bright, other books. But you're bright in one particular subject. It's shown you've got that aptitude for a certain. No, but they'll have read. But, they'll have read other books, but it's now not part of the curriculum, mm. and it's not part of, you know, what we just 
accept, but we've all heard of uh, Ravi Burns, we've all heard of Shakespeare, yeah. why have we not all heard of George Orwell? And I'm horrified that we've not all heard of George Orwell. So, no, and the point I was making is it's it's nothing to do with that people are bright or not bright, it's just that they've not been exposed. Because I think people of a certain generation, of our generation, would have, you know, Animal Farm 1984, we would have all come to that book in, in our kind of teenage years, yeah. and it then has a really profound effect on you. Aye, so if you're listening to this, go and read some George Orwell, and and you won't be disappointed. He's just fantastic, and he's got such a, he's such an economical writer. It's so tight. Everything's just so tightly. Mm-hmm. And what made you choose Animal Farm? I don't know. I just it, it just was it my book that I read at school. I can't remember whether I was given it as part of the curriculum or whether it was just something I read. Maybe it was one of my brother's books, and it was in the house. I can't really remember, but I just remember it really, really stayed with me. And um, like in Egypt, I was reading it as a teenager thinking, oh, no, no, everything will get OK, everything will be fine, it'll all be lovely at the end. And, and of course, it wasn't. And it is, it's just, you know, the, the, the power corrupts and that's it. And I don't care who it is or what you are, power just corrupts. And it's, it's just a sad fact of life. I got into music. I remember buying the Stereophonics album with like pocket money when I was nine. And I've always loved music and it's always been a massive part of my life. And I think when I was around 12 or 13, I discovered Nirvana. And Heavier Than Heaven is a biography about Kurt Cobain. And it's the first time I think I read a book where there was... I'm pretty sure it was the first time I read a book about a real person. So a non-fiction book and a life that was so painful. Yeah, out of that, he created music that millions of people over the years have listened to and loved and it was just interesting to hear about his like childhood all through his life what what drove him to be a guitarist and then obviously his untimely uh death which you know affected millions around the world but there's the last sentence in it and it's so beautiful and <laughs> i read it probably every two or three years and it still gets a little tear in my eye it's just brilliantly written and it came along at the right time to accompany the music and it sort of made the music more for me almost so what age would you have been in relation to Kurt Cobain when he died? I would only have been six, so right. there was no chance of me ever seeing him. But, you know, I've I've got the Reading, was it 91, the DVD of that live show where he comes on in the, in the wheelchair and then launches into the first song. So I still listen to them all the time. So yeah, that and I've, that book's one of the only ones that I brought over from Northern Ireland when I moved here. So it's kind of like a battered copy from... 20 odd years ago now because i always think as well in terms of you know non-fiction books biographies and, and particularly if you if you're reading a, a biography of somebody who you admire you, you really like their work or whatever there's always that danger of it just never lives up to expectations so it's good that if you read something where that kind of fulfills it yeah i think i agree because i recently read a book uh, called daisy jones and the six that was based i think roughly on fleetwood mac and then I went to have a look at Mick Fleetwood's autobiography, and I think they said he didn't come off very nicely, and a lot of the stories were embellished. Whereas this sort of being, you know, Kurt didn't write it, it was this other guy that had a, a completely impartial view. So it came across like he wasn't a very nice guy at times, whereas, and that sort of made it feel much more real. Um, and you can hear that in the music. 
It's interesting as well. I again, it's not a, it's not a book I read. Although a friend of mine's actually, I think he's interviewed in it. He used to he, he runs a a music publicity PR company down in in London, and they represented Nirvana in in the UK. So I think he was sure he's in this book. But it was interesting when they were reading about the book that he didn't interview Dave Grohl. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think he interviewed Chris and Dave didn't. I've read that Dave like can't listen to the music or anything, so he probably didn't right. want to get too involved. So yeah, there's not that side of it. But they do talk to like all the other ex-members and stuff, and so it gives that really balanced view of good and bad. You you mentioned obviously music plays a big part in, in your life, but the kind of bands you mentioned at the age, yeah, that's quite uh, that's decent music taste for just a, for just a wee guy if you're liking stereophonics <laughs> at the age of nine. Yeah, I yeah I sort of um, I remember my mum. Having um was it Smokey who who the is Alice in the car when I was on my way to like primary school when I was six or so so she was pretty cool with what I listened to and then um yeah from Nirvana I kind of got into Metallica about fifteen and then I became a bit of a metalhead and played in bands and stuff so yeah music's always been a big part of it. In terms of uh, this literary journey, we take you on then from the kind of childhood books to the more kind of teenage formative years. And again, if anybody who has read your uh, book blog, The Barefoot Book Club, will know that uh, with your next choice that you are a big fan of this particular author. Yes, I am. He's um, a definite favourite. So the, the book you've chosen is Two Brothers by Ben Elton. Why this book? But also why, why are you such a big fan of Ben Elton? So that book was the first Ben Elton book that I, that I ever read. I can't remember the first time I read it. I've read it a couple of times, and I actually would read it again now because it's been a while since I last read it. For me, I think at the time, it was probably the longest book I had ever read, um, which served as a bit of an achievement in itself. But it was also something that really kind of tapped into my own personal kind of passion and interest, which having studied history obviously is is history. And was kind of focused on conflict and war history and although so for those that don't know it's it's a book kind of around centered around um, Nazi Germany without kind of giving away too much about it but it's a subject matter that's obviously been done so much in in books and films and tv and things like that but for me the standout thing with that book was that it was centered in such a kind of well-documented and reproduced part of history but the story was so personal about the two the two brothers in the book and I think that's one of the things that I notice in Ben Elton's writing is his ability to kind of create a character that can be in any situation so every book I've read of his has been so different in terms of its setting or you know time period content all of them so so different in the tone but the one thing that always carries through is that the characters are so well developed and you really get a sense of who they are and you completely get taken on a journey with them which for me is the main thing I look for in a book I never you know finishing a book and feeling like I wasn't invested in the character is kind of the biggest letdown that a book can have for me so that's that's one of the best things that I think he's great for is getting into the mind of a character no matter how different they are you know he's written from a female perspective a male perspective all of them are just so real and genuine and the stories and the relationships between the people are so well weaved together as he kind of you know sometimes you get favorite authors where you just know 
you're already looking forward to when his next book comes out. And uh, from your point of view, you're already you're already there. You already know it's going to be a good book because you've, as you say, you've maybe gone through his different books and the different subject matter, different characters, and you know you are convinced with him as a writer now. I think in your book blog you called him a literary genius. If I'm <laughs> if I'm if I'm not wrong. Probably, I probably did. That's a bit cheesy, but um, yeah, I would say so. He is just, I can't imagine picking up a book of his and being disappointed at the end of it. And it's also, you know, there's a lot of authors that are really good at doing their thing, but they write a lot of kind of similar books. I can't, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but my mum, for instance, is very into like period dramas and she has a favourite author that writes that kind of book. But with Ben Elton, it's always something different. I, I can't think of another author off the top of my head that does it quite so well, that whatever he brings out, whatever he writes next, could be completely different and something that I maybe wouldn't necessarily normally pick up off the shelf based on what it's about, but because it's written by him, I know it's going to be good. So it kind of opens up a lot of different genres or topics that I wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards just because I know that he'll do it. He'll do it well and he'll make it interesting. The only book of his I've actually read is Dead Famous. And do you know, I think sometimes for me, because he's so well known, I found it hard not to hear his voice when I was reading it, which I think when I hear him speaking normally can be a wee bit, sometimes a bit sanctimonious. So I kind of finished the book and it was okay, but it's kind of put me off going back, which again, I probably shouldn't because I've read other people who, you know, I know their voices, but that's what's put me off reading some of his other books. That's interesting. I actually have to admit, I haven't read that book, but I've heard I've heard of it and I've heard good things. But I completely know that feeling when you're reading something and you have a picture in your head of the person who wrote it. I guess I benefit from kind of knowing him as an author more than anything else. So I know I know what he looks like and I know he's done so much other stuff. But I think I read that book before I knew certainly two brothers. Anyway, I read that before I knew who he was. And it's only over time, having read more of his stuff, that I've become more familiar with him. So I suppose I benefit from knowing him as a writer without a actual audible voice, first and foremost. Uh, but the book you've chosen is a memoir, and it's The Moons of Balloon by David Niven. We watched a lot of movies in my house. We weren't allowed to stay up late as youngsters, but we were allowed to watch quite a large amount of TV, and we watched a lot of black and white. We didn't have a colour TV for quite some years, probably until about 74, 75. So we watched a lot of black and white movies, and, and right from the outset, instantly, there was something classic about black and white, and there was something classic about... I was utterly drawn to, immediately, to, to Cary Grant, to James Stewart, to David Niven... I didn't know it at the time, but the, the voice of Shere Khan was George Sanders. And, you know, we would see maybe a Sanders movie, stuff with Peter Laurie, Bogart. And my parents would, on the LP turntable, the most played LP would easily be Songs for Swinging Lovers by Sinatra in his second peak. Cult's library was where I did my borrowing. And the librarian, although there were supposed to be sections for kids and sections for adults, the librarian was Mrs... Baxter, who was the mother of a girl who was in my class at school. And she was just a little bit more easygoing about, like, I think a couple of times I said, I'm taking this book out for my parents or some such thing. But by and large, she turned a blind eye. And I suppose when I read The Moons of Balloon, I'm guessing I'd be 13, 14. 
you know, I had two brothers. We were very silly. So we, we put Monty Python records up in the in our loft all the time. When Monty Python's book books came out, we bought them in immediately and just rolled around the floor, repeating the lines and laughing. And I guess and Spike Milligan's humour all was just completely corpsed me. I mean, corpsed me without exception. And therefore, his mad books about his war, even his poetry that he wrote, all of these things were competing with David Niven. But when I read David Niven, I didn't know I was a rascal at that age. I was a pain in the arse. I always took the other path. I always somehow seemed differently. I was picked on by bigger boys and punched because they weren't wholly in the right. But, you know, I was a stroppy, cheeky, different kind of. But I didn't know I was what I would prove to be, which is somebody a rascal who takes chances and does things that you shouldn't and gets away with them. And reading this book, I could hear a bell ringing somewhere deep in my DNA um, because it's a book where I'd seen David Niven quite a lot in movies. I'd been particularly knocked out by the original Pink Panther film, which is um, where he he's the rake. And what the hell is it? Is it George Pepper? There's a, there's a, God, I should know. But it's a brilliant movie in which the, the Pink Panther is a diamond. Anyway, David Niven, in general, was somebody who, and I think he was in a Doris Day movie, Don't Eat the Daisies, that I, I really loved. He, he was a known face, and I was a big devotee of the original Parkinson show, where you saw, you know, Mitchum and, and Wayne and David Niven and Ustinov repeatedly, and watching them and listening to their anecdotes uh, with Parkinson in the early 70s was enough to make me think, when I saw Niven's book, right, I must have that, and You'll know if anybody's read it, it's it's outrageous. You know, he looks like, you know, he's about the shape and size of Charles Hawtrey, but he behaves as if he's six foot four and blindingly handsome. And, you know, from the minute he loses his virginity, age 14 in London to an 18-year-old hooker who takes a shine to him kind of thing, throughout his mad life, his D-Day landings, the loss of his beloved first wife, mucking about with Clark Gable and Barry Moore and... Harry Grant and the hard drinking and the hard screwing around of, you know, the clan around Bogart and playing cricket in Hollywood in the 30s, just the cricket club out there, just everything about the rakish, you know, he's even a bad man, he's a little bit naughty to his second wife, admittedly, but this was like a harder edged version of people I read about in P.G. Woodhouse, because I read a lot of uh, my granddad, who I never knew because he died when my dad was one, had left something that my granddad had signed on the inside jacket it was called the smith journalist and my dad had inherited that from his dad who he never knew and i inherited that and woodhouse therefore captured me and woodhouse was always about rakish people who lived who had a club and dressed with spats and had man servants and got into scrapes and woodhouse's scrapes were always kind of jolly david nevin's scrapes were a little bit more risky and rakish and dangerous and i thought yeah that's life man even at that age, without knowing what I'd become and even being much less sure of myself then than I became, it was intoxicating to think you can start from not very much and you can behave as if you were immortal, have a great deal of fun, succeed, you know, not, not be a cad by any means, but you can just, what would we call it? You can nick about having fun. To my mind at that age, it was just outrageous. Outrageous. I loved it, man.
this is one of the books where actually you, from an initial correspondence, you did change your mind. And the book you've gone for now is uh, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark. That's right. Yeah, now, the, so originally I chose Doherty by William McElvaney. I mean, that was a real influence on me as well. And, and I think I, I ended up changing my mind because I started reading The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie again. And I thought it is such a perfect book. And I think I read it first, I must have been 17, 18, because I was in my sixth year at Kilmarnock Academy and I was doing six year studies under a teacher called Neil Dixon, who I still keep up with, actually. He was very influential in shaping my reading taste. So, you know, I, I just love Muriel Spark. I mean, Doherty, if I could just say a wee bit about that though, William McIlvany attended Kilmarnock Academy as a Kilmarnock man and he he came to the school to talk to us and he's, I think his nephew was a teacher there when I was there. But it was amazing to me that a book could be set in Kilmarnock, it was called Greyfnock, but it was very much Kilmarnock and I suppose that was amazing to me that a writer not only came from Kilmarnock and could be a writer and be from where I came from and also the town could be a backdrop. But I started reading Doherty again and I felt it was a kind of dense novel. You know, McIlvany's never been one for, for really kind of playing out the, the women in his novels. I mean, I will read it again, actually, now that it's in my consciousness. Because it's interesting that if you, like, when you go back, because I've asked a lot of people that of books that they choose from years ago that obviously the time and the place and the age are resonate with you. But then what is your reaction when you go back and, and read it later? Because you're you're looking at it through different eyes and different perspective and live different life experiences. Exactly, yeah. And I suppose that thing about, that you know, I would never have thought about McIlvany's women <laughs> at the time. I would just be thinking about it as a story and how, how is this going to progress? And, you know, it's very much the coming of age thing as well. I think McIlvany is a great writer, actually, and his sort of moments of real kind of sentences that just stand out, but there's some very heavy metaphors in his work, for sure. But, uh, the, I mean, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, though, have, I have actually gone back and read that several times in adulthood, and I just, I think, I mean, Muriel Spark is beyond compare. She's a, a jewel of a writer. She can nail things, you know. I finished listening to it again in audio, last night with Miriam Margoyles who reads it she's absolutely brilliant and she does all these like, Edinburgh accents just to a T but you know the, the final sentence of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie is exquisite and I, I mean I just urge anyone who hasn't read it or if you have read it to go back and read it because she's just a mistress of economy I think I just really admire any writer that can write in the way that she writes which you know she's very spare there's no sentence is you know extraneous in her work it's just perfect really a wonderful writer do you think as well because obviously a lot of us a lot of people will be familiar with obviously the book the story through maybe some of the adaptations but again when uh, professor willie maley was on the podcast and he's a, a big fan and expert on muriel sparking yeah. you know there's such a big body of work and i'm not sure maybe if people appreciate that or have delved into it as deeply as, as maybe they should, as you say, with when you read some of her books, they're all quite short and precise, but, and that's a real skill to be able to tell a story with fewer words. Yeah, and to keep it going and to just sort of think there's certain paragraphs even that you just go back and read several times after you've read it, you think, that's perfect. She does that. I actually, what was it, last summer I read uh, Robinson, which I'd never read before, which is set on a... a island a desert island and you know people are shipwrecked 
her humour as well is just biting. You know, there's nobody that does acerbic humour and writing like she does as well. I mean, what there was the I think it was our hundred the anniversary hundred anniversary of our birth two years ago maybe, and uh, they brought out all the the books again and it's Canongate. I thought at the time now I must go back and read. I don't think I have read them all actually. I've read a lot of them, but uh, she's a writer that you would want to go back to because. She can something she pulls out the bag every time. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at Read All About Twenty, on Instagram at Read All About It podcast, or you can send an email to Read All About It at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review, and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.